We're going to continue now by um, reading from God's Word. And we're going to begin in reading from 1 Samuel chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way and keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then you will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumours. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this, and then they returned that same day to Ekron. 
These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. One each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messages to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. Good morning. My name's Rick, for those who I haven't met before, and it's my pleasure to, um, to add my welcome uh, to you here this morning. We're going to spend some time now in that first Bible reading that we had read from 1 Samuel chapter 6. As we're going through 1 Samuel, these past three weeks, chapters 4, 5 and 6, kind of form a bit of a mini-series looking at the Ark of God. And so uh, today we're coming, I guess, to the end of that mini-series. But let's, uh, let's pray as we continue to reflect on God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'll give us hearts and minds that are ready to hear and to trust and to obey all that you have to say to us. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As... Uh, Anzac Day comes around, it often occurs to me the perhaps surprising fact that at Anzac Day we celebrate or maybe better commemorate a defeat, right? When, when the Anzacs were devastated on the shores of Gallipoli. But as I think about that, it also occurs to me that there really is something quite remarkable and unique in that idea of Anzac Day, that we, it does have its origins in a defeat, because it suggests uh, that we don't just glory in victory, but rather we recognise the value of sacrifice for the sake of others. And so over the decades since then, and, and now more than a century since then, since the Anzacs first landed at Gallipoli, what we remember and, and celebrate and, and commemorate is in the, the servicemen and women who've given their lives for the peace and safety of others. And as we kind of think about that, that initial battle and that initial military defeat of Anzac Day, it occurs to me that in this mini-series in 1 Samuel that we've been looking at over the past three weeks, it began also with a military defeat. Two weeks ago, back in chapter 4, it was a, a devastating defeat on the battlefield for the Israelites, 30,000 of them killed. But unlike Gallipoli, there is no chance that that defeat was ever going to be commemorated, much less celebrated, for years to come. There is no chance that that was going to be seen in a glorious 
light. And in fact, at the end of the first episode in chapter 4, you might remember the words of, the, of that dying woman, the, the devastated cry that the glory has departed from Israel. There is no glory left after that day. It was a devastating defeat. It was a situation that was wrong from the beginning, from the Israelites' perspective, and that ended in disaster. There was nothing redeemable or praiseworthy at all about that whole situation. But as the story has continued, we discover that there was, in fact, a purpose in this. That while Israel's armies lay decimated and now entirely out of the picture, we discover that God does not need armies to bring glory to himself. Whether literal armies or figurative armies, God does not need armies to bring glory to himself. And so what we get instead, throughout these last couple of chapters, is a devastating display of the power of God with no other people involved. And that leaves everyone involved confronted by that power. And so I guess the topic of today's episode is being confronted by the power of God. And I wonder if that's something that perhaps we don't think about that often, the power, the devastating power of God. And it leaves us with the question, what difference will it make if we truly recognise the power of God as we see him displayed in this chapter? If you remember the story so far, we've seen so far some serious underestimating, if you could put it like that, of the power of God. Back in chapter 4, the, the Israelites they tried to, they made the mistake of trying to use the power of God. They had some sense of God's power, but they wanted to use it for their own purposes. They thought it was, it was like a, a weapon or, or a tool that they could use, that they could manipulate and control, so to speak. And again, we saw how badly that went for them. 30,000 killed in battle, their priests killed, the Ark of God captured, and on that day it was, it was devastating and it looked like a defeat for God himself. We also saw last week the Philistines underestimating the power of God. They'd heard in that first battle, they'd heard of the power of God when he um, exerted his power against the Egyptians 300 years earlier, and they thought that they could oppose that power. They said, be strong men, we can do this, we can fight and it seemed at first like they succeeded. They defeated the Israelites, they captured the ark, and they tried to submit the ark of God underneath the power of their god, Dagon, in Dagon's temple, like a captured slave. They tried to dominate, they tried to defy the power of God. But again, last week we saw how badly that went, and it was almost comical, wasn't it? The, the, the statue of Dagon kept falling over, and in the end losing its head and its hands as it bows before the ark of God. Nothing could be clearer that they could not dominate the power of God. And the Philistines, the people, the rulers, were devastated by death, disease, and a plague of rats. And so by the end of chapter 5, they're at their wit's end. They want to get rid of the ark, but they're so terrified, they want to make sure they do it right. Which brings us today to chapter 6. And here we see what it looks like for the Philistines to actually be confronted, really confronted by the power of God. And so we begin in verse 1, that after just seven months of the ark being in their territory, they really are, as I said, at their wit's end. The Philistine leaders call a conference of their priests and their diviners, and they ask the question, 
What shall we do about this? As I said, they know they want to get rid of the ark, but they're terrified that in doing so, they might upset God even more. And so the priests and diviners, they give their advice, but it kind of seems like they're really just guessing, doesn't it? But they do speak more than they know, I think, when they suggest a guilt offering, because they have incurred guilt in God's eyes. They, they did try to oppose the power of God, but they failed. And now they're, I guess, scratching around for ideas of what to do, and, and we hear in verse 5 what they suggest. Make models of the tumours and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. It almost sounds comical, doesn't it? Yeah. Five gold tumours and five gold rats. I mean, the gold is obviously valuable and you can see kind of the sense in that. It demonstrates how desperate their situation was, how serious their situation was, how much they felt they were in God's debt, that they needed to give what they could. Gold is valuable. What a bizarre thing to have to do, you know, to make a model of, of a growth and, and, and of a rat. They're just completely overwhelmed by, the, by God's power over them. And so they're just trying to think of whatever they can do. And notice that they say, perhaps God might lift his heavy hand from on them. Maybe if you do this, God might lift that heavy hand. There's no confidence here. And there is certainly no illusion anymore that they can defy or oppose the power of God. God's power over them is complete. Over them, it says, over their gods, over their land. And so they have no choice but to give glory to God and hope that God will lift his heavy hand from on them. And there's, there's really a, a kind of a, de, a delightful play on, on words going on here because in the Old Testament, the word for glory, give glory to God, that word means heavy. To be glorious is to be heavy. So I don't know if Weight Watchers existed 3,000 years ago, but if it did, I'm sure it would have gone out of business and it certainly would have had to change its name because weighty is glorious and God's glory was heavy on the Philistines. And we can't hear this and not remember those words of that dying wife of the wicked priest who said, where is the glory? The glory has departed from Israel. She named her son Ichabod, which means where is the glory? There is no glory, it is gone. But here we discover that the glory is not gone. The glory of God is not gone. Instead, the glory of God is weighing heavy on the Philistines. And so the advice of the Philistine priests and diviners is all they can do, but give glory to God. How remarkable is it that in apparent defeat, without the Israelites even lifting a finger, the last thing we've heard of the Israelites is they've been decimated in battle. God brings glory to himself through the Philistines with no one else involved. And this whole episode, you see, echoes right throughout of what God had done, the same sort of thing that God had done 300 years earlier to the Egyptians when he brought glory to himself, when he opposed the power of the Egyptians. And so now, 300 years later, the Philistines, they still know that story. They've still heard of that. 
Back in chapter 4, they thought they could defy the power of God, but no longer. Now they realise they are up against a force that they cannot contend with, a weight of glory that is too heavy for them. And so they say, give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his heavy hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when he treated them harshly? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? And so you see the result. Just like with Egypt in the Exodus, the Philistines give up their riches. They give up their gold and send the ark away. They've got no choice but to glorify and honour the very God they thought they could dominate. And just to be sure that it really was God that was doing this and not just some remarkable coincidence, you see the test that they come up with? They get a a cart, they hitch the cart with the ark and the offerings to cows that have never pulled a cart before and with babies that need to be fed that are over here. They want to make it completely unlikely that those cows would, would want to go the other way to back to Israel. The only reason it would go that way is if something, if God was directing them. And that's exactly what happens. Those cows make a beeline for, for, for Israel, or I guess you could say a cow line, really, for Israel. They don't turn to the right or to the left, and they are lowing all the way. It's like they're protesting at being led against their will, which is exactly what's happening. The Philistine rulers know it. In verse 16, they see what happens, and they go home. Now, before we kind of come to the end of the passage and see how it finishes, I just want to point out two observations, I think, that this shows us about the power of God. And the first, I think, which is pretty obvious, is that God doesn't need anyone's help. God doesn't need anyone's help. And I suspect that, I mean, this may not be particularly significant for all of us, but but for those of us who might be tempted to think too highly of our own actions for God, or maybe too pragmatically of our own actions for God, that God somehow needs me, that God's hands are tied without me doing my thing. I mean, of course, God does call us. God does command us to do everything that we do, to bring glory to him, to honour him. We do this with our words, we do it with our actions, we do it with our thoughts, bring glory and honour to God. We are called to live lives that trust in God and so honour him in that way. We are called to live lives of love and godliness and so honour him. We do it by encouraging our brothers and sisters to trust him more. That's how we bring honour and glory to God. We do it through telling other people about what God has done for us through Jesus and through living as an example of his love. And, and just incidentally, I suspect that's, that's why we value sacrifice for the sake of others in, in that kind of undergirding of Anzac Day. God commands us to glorify him in this way, just like he did for the Israelites. But we must not think that God's hands are tied without us. God will bring glory to himself by whatever means he chooses. But of course, that is not a disincentive for us to want to glorify God and honour God. It's entirely clear from this episode, God will glorify himself with or without you. He will glorify himself through you or in spite of you. 
but wouldn't you rather it be with you? Wouldn't you rather it be through you? Wouldn't you rather not be the one who God has to drag, kicking and screaming to the way that he wants you to go? Which brings us to our second observation about the power of God. That is, God will be glorified even by those who oppose him. God will be glorified even by those who oppose him. That's what's happened with the Philistines. They tried to oppose God's power and they are now forced to give glory to God. They had no other option. And you know, one day, every single person will be confronted by the power of this same God. The God who defeated the Philistines with a box and who has now defeated death and raised Jesus to rule the world. Jesus, who was dead and cold in a tomb, his body was no more, was just as lifeless as that gold-covered box. And Philippians 2 says, God has exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, every, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, to the glory of God the Father. You hear that? Not just those who want to give glory to God, not just those who want to confess that Jesus is Lord, but everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bend the knee and give glory to God. And so this is a sobering warning to anyone who thinks that the power of God is something to be underestimated or ignored or opposed. In the end, everyone will glorify him. And there's a sobering ending also to the end of this story. <coughs> Excuse me. We've seen what happens when the Philistines are confronted by the power of God. But surprisingly, perhaps, the Israelites have a similar experience when they are confronted by the power of God. From verse 13, the Israelites in the town of Beth Shemesh, they rejoice when they see the ark has returned to their town. But just like back in chapter 4, when they thought that, God, that the ark was a weapon to be wielded for their own purposes, they still don't respect the power or the holiness of God. And a bunch of them look inside the ark, even though they'd been told not to, and they were killed. And so even the Philistines, sorry, and even the Israelites discover now the hard way that the power of God is not something to be trifled with. And I suspect <clears throat> the wisest words we hear from the Israelites in this whole episode is there in verse 20, when they say, who can stand in the presence of the Lord? this holy God. The power of God is not something to be trifled with. The holiness of God is not something to be underestimated. And the Israelites have discovered this the hard way. And so they say, who can stand in his presence? And that question really echoes throughout the whole Bible. And it's a question that we hear again at the very end of the Bible, in that great vision of God's final judgment on the world, when his judgment comes and the question is asked again, who can stand in his presence? When confronted by the power of God, that's the question that matters. But when it comes up at the end of the Bible, the answer comes with it. 
It is those who have been shielded by God's, sorry, shielded God by God's judgment, from God's judgment, because we are wearing the robes that have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Robes that have been washed by the lamb who was slain, but who conquered death and was risen to life by the power of God and now rules the world in peace and justice. And I want to say, how remarkable is it that this devastating and terrifying power of God is most clearly demonstrated by the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. That this power that should rightly make us tremble has actually been motivated by his love and so directed for our good. This is what it will mean to be truly confronted by the power of God that we seek refuge at the place where his power and love come together in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do at times and perhaps even often think too little of your power. Maybe we want to make the most of it for ourselves when we need something. But Father, this display of your power that we see here is clearly not something to be trifled with. But Father, we thank you that your power has been exerted for our good in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we ask that as we tremble before you, we will come to the glorious cross of Jesus and the throne of his resurrection, that we may know that your power has been put to our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.